if you looked up in the dictionary, like a photo next to the word and definition for evocative, it would be this album. He's singing to you and you're like, oh my God, I received the message. (laughs) Whatever you want, you can have. His work was a living time capsule to where he had been. I mean, has anyone ever looked better in a pair of Levi's? I don't think so. Oh, yes. Take my tiny hand right into there. Just total hard on for George Michael. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to the Untitled Gen X podcast, a podcast dedicated to the pop culture that raised us. I'm Lori, a writer and pop culture lover who's stupid excited to welcome the whip smart and wickedly talented Jess Sanfilippo to join me in singing the highest praises of George Michael's 1987 debut solo masterpiece, Faith. But before we get into the teacher preacher of it all, I'd like to tell you a little about the millennial with a Gen X soul, Jess Sanfilippo. Jess is the founder of Roadie Social, an innovative marketing solution for touring musicians who are dedicated to elevating the modern artist-fan relationship on the road. Thanks for joining me on the pod, Jess. Hello. I'm so excited. This oh my God, like me so, too. It's like so overdue. I feel like I, since we've known each other, because it's been decade plus, yeah, um, I've always felt like, you know, like the honorary Gen Xer. <laughs> and so I was like... Yes, this is the perfect moment and the perfect record to talk about. I'm like, so amped. Man, you know, I'll tell you, like, I kind of broke the rules by bringing you on. Like, it's an unspoken rule, but it's a rule. Like, you are a millennial and we don't want there to be a divide, but sometimes there is a little bit of divide, but you have some mad Gen X soul in you. You really are the exception. Thank you. I mean, thank God I'm not the rule. I don't like rules. (laughs) And I don't know what it is about you. You just have like a deep appreciation for Gen X culture. Super true. I mean, I grew, as much as I grew up a millennial, I grew up on Gen X pop culture because my parents, you know, so this is like a distinct honor I hold with lots of pride and precious (laughs) energy, though please don't come for me. And uh, yeah, or if you come for me, I can take it. This is a badass chick. She does not play. So, okay. As the founder of Roadie Social, you have a deep, deep and abiding love of music. Tell us a little about what music and specifically George Michael mean to you. Music is super, super powerful. You know, to me, I think it it's the soundtrack to films just as much as it's like the soundtrack to your life, you know, every different phase, every, every season of life, you have different songs or, you know, full records that you attach yourself to or those experiences to. And so music in the landscape of pop culture is like the one thing that you can get lost in and get found in at the same time. Oh, yes. I love that. Right. It's like, It's, it's one of the most out-of-body experiences. And, you know, again, because I'm a millennial, I was one <laughs> when this, a whole, when one. George, a whole one years when George Michael's Faith record came out. So it wasn't until, you know, I remember my first exposure to it. Mm-hmm. I was like, maybe like seven or eight. And I was like up late at night watching MTV, you know, back when MTV played music videos. 24 hours, not the Rob Deerdeck show. Um, <laughs> and I remember seeing the face. So it was like 
early 90s, right? So okay. like two years after it had come out, that was like their throwback hour. <laughs> I'm not winning any Gen X points. They were like the classics. And I'm like, oh, well, that's okay. Cool in the gang shirt classic. But George <laughs> Michael, maybe, maybe not quite classic yet. Um, but I remember I was like seven or eight and seeing the Faith music video playing. And I was like, whoa. I am, I mean, obviously not with this vocabulary. I was seven or eight, but like in retrospect, I go, whoa, that human is fascinating to me. And so that was my first, you know, foray into it. And then I remember going to FYE and buying the, (laughs) at the mall and buying the, the faith album. And it was like, it it was a CD. It wasn't a vinyl, you know, (laughs) or a cassette, Mm -hmm. but it was the CD. And I was just like, this is in, I'm, I'm, playing this. It's really cool that even from a young age, though, you were drawn to how magnetic George Michael was in that video. I mean, the voice, the imagery of the video, it's all super powerful. And he just had the thing. Right. I I mean, there there really, really isn't words to it, right? It's like a thing. It's like, it's indescribable, Mm -hmm. but it's totally identifiable. You see it when someone has the thing. Right. And he had it. He had it. Yeah. I mean, we all know George Michael was the better known half of Wham. Mm -hmm. And um, I did an episode way back in season one about uh, last Christmas, which was really fun. And of course, Wham was hugely successful, but by 86, he was just ready to move on. And so he began working on the solo project that would become Faith that was Mm -hmm. released in 1987. And he said, I absolutely wanted to be in the same stratosphere as Jackson and Prince. Definitely. Yeah. I'd gone from a couple of years before being perfectly happy, like being, you know, on the top of all the pop chart, you know, and he said, and I began thinking I can do what Michael Jackson can do. I mean, he just done thriller for fuck's sake. And he said, I wouldn't have the guts to do it now. I wanted to be in that vein, but mostly I wanted to make music as good as theirs. And I would argue that he did. Yeah. Oh, I would agree. I mean, we don't have to argue. Let's hold yeah. let's hold the hands and kiss on yeah. that one. I mean, it's crazy to me because if we hop in the time machine a little bit, yeah. like he w- he was first in Wham when he was 18, right? Like by any measure of modern day, you're like, oh, that's like a boy band. Right. Yeah. By all definitions, Wham really was a two-man boy band. It was. It appealed to te- like teeny boppers oh, yeah. and Uh, You know, I've read tons and tons of interviews with George and he's famously like, I was over it. I was over the teeny bopper thing. Didn't want to be a teen idol. I wanted to, you know, make records like Prince and Michael Jackson. And then I think that Faith, the album, I mean, we'll get into the single itself, but like the album as a whole is completely lives up to that statement he had. Yeah. And, you know, he, he and Andrew Ridgely of Wham, they had both agreed that, look, we're going to keep doing this as long as it's fun. And as long as it's fun for both of us. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that Andrew Ridgely was necessarily ready for, you know, the Wham wave to, to end, but George just wasn't satisfied anymore and he was ready to move on and there wasn't ill feelings or animosity. And Andrew Ridgely always celebrated George Michael's success. And they really had a beautiful friendship and, mm-hmm. you know, it, it wasn't a salacious or crazy ending. It just 
look, I want you to be happy. And if this is what it takes and truly this album is such cause for celebration, George Michael is an incredible vocalist, of course, but he also wrote and produced every single song on this album. There was only one song that he had a co-writer for. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is all him. And he also played a lot of the instruments on the album. Yes. I thought that that is probably one of the coolest things about this this album is that he was like, I'm going to try to play everything. Like really, you know, having an amicable dis- disbandment, mm-hmm. I guess, whatever, we're going to make up words um, from, you know, from Wham. Mm-hmm. And then being like, I really like committing so fully to, I want to create this music. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to have my finger in every pie, you know, right. or Korg or whatever, you know, every synth <laughs> that I'm using, my finger is going to be in it. And I think that that was like really cool. And I, I also loved just talking about like the sound of the album. There, there are some artists and musicians that really kind of are synthetic sound versus practical, like instrumental. Yes. And he was just like, there's no line. They all work well together in this album track to track to track is just like, yep, yep, yep. You're right. You're right. You're George Michael. You're brilliant. You're right. So you're right. And you know, what I found interesting too, is when you look at the track list, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily look at all of these songs and think this was super cohesive in terms of telling a story. You know how a lot of albums do that? Like they are all in a similar vein, if you will. Like if I think of, <laughs> this is a terrible example, <laughs> forgive me, but oh, I'm ready Taylor, for this. I have Taylor Swift on the brain today for some reason, but who doesn't every day. I love Taylor, but I'm just saying like each of her albums has a very distinct sound and the songs all seem to go together in the larger vision of that album, right? This, you've got something like kissing a fool, which is that super jazzy, beautiful, melodic song to like monkey. And they it's like kissing a fool's mm-hmm. right after monkey on the track list. And you're like, what is this? Many of these things are not like the other, but yet it's such an interesting album in that there's not a bad song on it. You don't know what you're going to get, I guess, from track to track. And I kind of love that about it. And it doesn't make it feel chaotic or messy in any way. Totally agree. I mean, that this is a cover to cover record. Like, I don't ever skip a song when I listen to this album. I know. I and that's so rare. It's super rare. And I, I think, too, it's really fascinating to me when there is a solo record that someone who is formerly in a band or a mm-hmm. group makes, how you can tell, and I think that that's why people connect to them. Like that debut solo album is in a lot of people who are fans of, of an artist is like, that's the one you could release 10 more albums, but that first one is the one. Right. I think it's because they, they take us on this journey. And I think George took us on this journey of like exploring what his sound was right. Yes. Like from track to track, he's like, let's just like, see what sticks or like I'm going to do a give no fucks like discovery of their personal sound. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what this album does. I think, yeah, I think what you mentioned earlier, the monkey and kissing Mm -hmm. a fool, like those being back to back in the track list. And I mean, also on the track list, you've got, I want your sex followed by one more try. Like, whoa. Yeah. Whiplash. It's it's a whiplash. (laughs) 
but it's so good. You're like, yes to both of these things. They incite totally different feelings and emotions out of me and I'm into it. Yeah. Like the epitome, like if you looked up in the dictionary, like a photo (laughs) next to the word and definition for evocative, it would be this album cover, Yes, right? It would. A lot of the time when I go back and I re-listen to things that I really loved growing up, sometimes it disappoints. And this one really didn't. This was a joy through and through. And my first exposure to this album, I was friends with a girl across the street who was a couple years older than me. And um, I Want Your Sex came out as a single and that came on in her room and she knew the words and like, she, she knew this artist and I'm like, what is this? And of course, I mean, I've said it a million times. I went to Christian school. I was just like, oh my God, my ears were shocked by this, you know, 1987. (laughs) I, I think I was maybe in sixth grade. This was a lot for me, like mind blown. Mm-hmm. It's like, I wanted to dance to it, but at the same time, I'm like, oh, this is scandalous. Much like, like a virgin, you know, I was like, oh, right. I love it, but oh, it's so illicit. Yeah. It was, it was like, it was that secret rebellion song. Oh, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I totally. think that I, I loved that track. Well, I mean, technically three tracks because it's the three. Yes. Part. Yes. But I, I love it so much because it was. You could tell lyrically, but very explicitly when you came to the lyrics, how introspective of his own personal sexual experience and exploration it was for um, him to write that song and like embrace it like he did. And so I, you know, was years later when I was mature enough, you know, seven or eight seeing Faith, I was like, this is enough tight pants, butt situation (laughs) for me. And, you know, and then I, you know, getting older and stuff and kind of being like, oh, whoa, whoa, you know, like as I'm moving into adolescence and puberty and Mm -hmm. exploring my own sort of like that pleasure center of self and being like, oh my gosh, this is, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, it's like, I feel like that is my expression for everything George Michael related. Mm -hmm. It's just like, whoa. Yeah. (laughs) It was shocking and necessary and amazing. And I think it gave a lot of people freedom in a way, mm-hmm. like to express themselves <laughs> in a way. <laughs> yeah. Freedom. No, no pun intended, but, <laughs> or all the puns intended. Or all puns. Yes. Yeah. You know, to express themselves. And I thought that that was really awesome. And of course the album was released on October 30th, 1987, like we said. So Mark Coleman of Rolling Stone said, George Michael was one of pop music's leading artisans, a painstaking craftsman who combines a graceful knack for vocal hooks with an uncanny ability to ransack the past for musical ideas and still sound fresh, which yes, because there are throwbacks to sort of older sounds, particularly in Kissing a Fool, that sounds modern and nostalgic at the same time. Right. K- Kissing a Fool is such like a jazzy loungy, but, mo- but, but it doesn't feel, dated. it feels timeless rather yes. than dated. Yes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that one in particular, I'm like, oh, this is that he was in his Frank Sinatra era when he wrote this one. Like you can feel it when you uh-huh. listen. Um, the piano is like just so sensual and sultry. Yes. If you know, that could be sensual and sultry which it can't so yes he proved it <laughs> he did he's he done proved us 
Do you have a favorite song on the album? <sighs> this is a tricky one. I think I think my favorite on the album is the title track. Okay. It's because of the layers. So. All right. Well, then let's jump into the singles. Let's start with Faith. George said he wanted the vocals to be, quote, dry and in your face. And the music video was directed by Andy Morahan. And this dude, Andy Morahan, directed a lot of the videos for this album. But he's directed stuff for like Pet Shop Boys, AHA, ACDC, Ozzy Osbourne, and like everybody in between. He's the man. Mm-hmm. And of course, the video opens on a Wurlitzer jukebox to I Want Your Sex, which is mildly mm-hmm. confusing for a moment. I'm like, wait, which video am I watching again? And um, apparently when the song Faith begins, when it transitions from I Want Your Sex to the song Faith, it's the chorus of a Wham song called Freedom. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, crossover and then a crossover. I love it. That's being played on the church organ. It's like the coolest thing. I'm like, I'm super like just by design. I'm like, where's the Easter egg? Where can we put an Easter egg? Where can we do a callback? Where can we do a through line, you know? And so, especially when I listen to music, I'm like, ah, what is, what is like a lyrical continuity or like a Mm. melody continuity? And so that was one of the coolest things when I was like, oh yeah, like the, I want your sex playing on the jukebox fading out Mm -hmm. the like sort of cathedral organ treatment Wham's Freedom. Wham's Freedom. You must love George Michael's Freedom 90 with all the Easter egg throwbacks to Faith with the the leather jacket on fire. And isn't there like a jukebox? Am I making that up in my memory? I've only seen that video 10 million times times. because I love it. (laughs) Yeah, there's all these little like relics of his iconic career that are like kind of destroyed in that video which yeah. is super cool. So cool. Yeah. It's, I, that's, that's what I've loved so much about his, you know, obviously I loved him, his wham stuff, you know, as I got older and listened to it. Cause again, one, when faith came out, um, <laughs> but you know, I think that that's been a really cool thing to follow through his career is all of those little like nuggets of time capsule that he like He was just like, his work was a living time capsule to where he had been and how he got to where he was at that point in his career. And so just total hard on for George Michael. (laughs) Those nuggets are really like nods to the fans. It's saying, this is a part of me. This is something you all identify with. This is something that's meaningful to you. And I haven't forgotten about it. It's still part of me. But yet, maybe by Freedom 90, the explosions and the fire of it all is, and I'm moving on in this way. Like, I see it, Mm -hmm. and I'm also evolving into this other sound or space. Yeah, like acknowledging and appreciating. Yeah. Because, I mean, George George was really kind of, like, famous for hating being famous. Mm. He didn't like the idolatry of, like, his career. Uh He loved the fans. He loved, obviously, the art that he was creating, but he was, like... I could do without the big, like, you know, the crazy press tours and like all the and the lack business of privacy. Stuff. Right, right. Yeah. He he was a very personal person. And that clearly translates to his work and why why people connected to his work because mm-hmm. they saw themselves in it. Mm-hmm. But so many interviews where he's like, if I wasn't at a celebrity level, like that would be cool with me. I'd be super, you know, 
George never said this, but I'd be super chill with that. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I think Freedom 90 was like an homage to like saying, I see you. I appreciate you. You got me to where I am. Mm-hmm. You've given me the ability to create art as a lifestyle, you know, but now I'm kind of like growing up. Right. And so it's like, I know you grew up with me and now I'm growing into this thing. I love when artists do like the Easter egg things like Mm -hmm. that or throwbacks because it gives people who have been there the whole time, something like special and it gives someone new, like just something new, like that's new to someone who comes in at that point in the career, Yeah, but it's, it's uh, reminiscent for anyone who's been there. Yeah. And I think it was also perhaps part, maybe his way of saying the business behind all of this is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So in this video, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, scruffy beard and a lot of booty action. And I mean, has anyone ever looked better in a pair of Levi's? I don't think so. No, no. I mean, he's The boss tried, but George, <laughs> I'm sorry, Brucey, but... That black leather jacket that says Rockers Revenge on the back of it and and the Ray-Ban aviators and the signature dangle cross earring. I mean, iconic. All the hip shaking. Very, very Elvis-esque. Very much so. Yes. And I think that I what I loved about the styling, styling, like it was a big production. It was him. That's enough style right there. <laughs> that's what, I mean, that's all. all we need, really. <laughs> Do we need anything else? Um, but... It, it was such a redefinition of like masculinity. Yes. In fact, I'm glad you said that because authors Bob Batchelor and Scott Stoddart said that this video depicts George Michael as, quote, a masculine sex object. Which he was. Which he was. You know? And I appreciate that because, you know, we see some sexy lady legs in this video. It's, it's all good. Mm-hmm. But like, it's mostly him. Mm-hmm. He gave something for us all to appreciate and look at. I think we all like looking at him. Yeah, I have no complaints. Mm-hmm. The complaint box has zero comments from me. Say <laughs> that. So on YouTube, the video has been viewed over 36 million times. And I was looking at the comments and someone said two words, shadow beard, that beard. Very few people with facial hair in history can pull off that modest scruff like George oh. Michael could. Oh, yeah. Nobody does it better. Yeah. No. And I will say, too, that 35 million of those views was me of that video. So <laughs> just takes credit. Just just so you know. It's just on a constant <laughs> loop in the background. Yes. Yeah. Never, never not playing. That's my <laughs> that's my theory for this video. So. Faith sat at the number one position on the Billboard Hot 100 charts for four weeks. So Limp Bizkit covered it. Oh gosh, see, I know. Now we're getting now we're getting into sensitive territory. This is the low point of that single. Let's be real. No, but so now I'm just putting things together. This is a great episode for me as an honorary Gen Xer living as a millennial body. Okay, to do this particular album in this track because I was fortunate enough. Again, I was like seven or eight. Limp Bizkit's, I think, came out in like the late 90s and like 98. They released, they added it to their record. I blacked out in the late 90s, so I don't really know. Well, that's fair. We all should have. (laughs) But I remember that a lot of my friends, that was the first time they had ever heard the song Faith. Yes. And I was like, got to be that like 
hipster bitch that was like, well, actually, and like put, you know, push my glasses up my mm-hmm. nose and say the original was George Michael, blah, blah, blah. So that was really interesting because, I mean, George hated it. <laughs> he absolutely hated it. And that's fair. And it's very fair. So, I mean, I, do, I don't know that I have a lot of positive opinions <laughs> about the Limp Biscuit cover. Um, but, you know, I, I can give an A for effort in, in the strategy behind it. I mean, if it leads people ultimately to George Michael, then, then, then it's we okay. Win. We got an A plus, right? Yes. Because someone said in the comments, I like the Limp Biscuit version. And my mom was so upset. <laughs> She made me listen to the original and I instantly understood why Limp Biscuit was absolutely terrible compared to the original. I will never forget that lesson. I mean, there, there's nothing in the original faith that says, know what this could use? Demonic screaming. Not, not a single note, nothing, no run. No, Mm-mm. no, zero. So thank oh, goodness to that mom of that human being, because I think we all learned some important lessons <laughs> very much. So, <laughs> okay, let's move on to father figure. Oh, yes. Take my tiny hand right into there. <laughs> okay. So George said the initial concept was totally different from the way the song turned out. The initial concept was to make it a kind of mid-tempo dance track. He'd cut the snare on the board. Don't know what that means, Jess. Just letting you know. And suddenly it changed the whole entire mood of the track. Suddenly it seemed really dreamy. And I thought, well, hey, this is actually so much better. So I worked the rest of the track around the spacey type sound. And it ended up, in my mind, being the most original sounding thing on the album. It is very dreamy. It's a mood. Yes, uh, it is, by all definitions, the ethereal track of the record. Yes. No question. Uh-huh. So taking the snare off of the... <laughs> what Explain that means, to me. <laughs> basically, he he stripped, like, the really sort of tinny drum that would have been in there. Yeah, I guess yeah. I know what a snare is. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so it's like the snare drum. So that, in in my opinion... And, oh, the amount of money I would pay, probably like ten ninety nine to hear <laughs> the version with with the snare yes. would be, would be fascinating. And, and I would love to, at some point in my life be like, Oh, that's fucking cool. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I can see that stripping that away really gave it that sort of like that floaty sound. Mm-hmm. What were your impressions on the video? The video, I will say this is the video I'm the least familiar with to be totally you know, honest. Me too, which is what weird. Is Cause that? I know every single lyric to this song. Yeah. I was sort of like, had I seen this before? I, I don't know. I thought that the I same thing. Had. Yeah. I was like, but how is that possible? Right. Cause this I was, cause he did four single releases from this record, right? Father figure was one of them. Mm-hmm. So one would assume this is like the mainstream moment, but yeah, I, I just, I haven't spent like barely any time with it. Mm-hmm. But I, I will say not having anything to point to <laughs> on the video question of this, but like, I think that this track was his Prince song. Oh. My brain associates father figure so much with like, sort of like a, 
the, a floaty, sultry raspberry beret. Okay. Like if you kind of think of both of those songs, yes. like, oh, th- this was his Prince era song, right? I can totally see that now that you Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you can make Prince sexier, George Michael did it. <laughs> if it's even possible. It's very hard, but he managed. So the girl in this video, the woman, her name is Tanya Coolridge. She was a model and later she was the power drill girl in Van Halen's pound cake. Just if you, if you care to go check that out. Mm -hmm. I'm very familiar with Van Halen. Like that's why I grew up. I grew up on like the Van Halen's Metallica's, the Aerosmith's. So I know, I know the power drill girl for sure. That's her. And so in this video, I guess she's a model and he's a cab driver and he wears his aviators driving the cab at night to pick her up. And they've got this love affair, but then it's intercut with scenes of him pulling pictures out of magazines of her and tacking it up on like what could only really be described as a murder board. I don't know why anyone has would do that you know, all that's missing are like the red strings, you know, <laughs> right. They've got this like very passionate sexual relationship, but then she's cheating on him with the photographer. And then I don't know, they break up and then they're back together. I'm not exactly sure what happened in this video. It's moody and a little spooky. Yeah. I love, I'm obsessed with the art of music videos. Like uh-huh. you want to do just a whole podcast about music videos. Let's do it. Okay. I think it it was so like counter to the song, in my opinion, which I guess in its own right is a form of art. But I feel like that story, you know, with the model and the one, let's also don't drive at night with your aviators. That's hazardous. Um, It's very dangerous. Public service announcement. Yes. Mm -hmm. And this is your PSA. Do you know where your (laughs) children are? The more you know. Yeah. Like it didn't hit the moment. Of the song. I agree because if you think about what the lyrics are saying, it's essentially saying, I will be all the things you need in life always. Mm-hmm. I will be there no matter what. Every need you have, I will be there to fulfill, which is actually a really, I, I guess it's a lovely sentiment. Depending on expression. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Depending on how we bring that to life. Yes. Yeah. It feels like it could be a little love bomby. I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. there's some, some red flag behavior going on in this. Yeah, and we, we've learned, we've learned what gaslighting means at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have. So, I mean, there, there are questions, but in the spirit of George Michael and all that is good and wonderful about this song, it, it was kind of bizarre. I, I didn't really get it. Cause I'm like, well, then what are you saying? Like you guys break up at some point she slaps you at some point. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I, you know, I feel like there's a story arc here that could be despite being an offering that you could be everything for someone that could just not be enough. You know, oh. uh, if we kind of look at it through that lens with like her messing around with the photographer How and dare she on George Michael, on George Michael, crazy? who cheats on George Michael, who do you think you are? God, Tanya Coolridge. Is that her name? Yes. <laughs> yeah, Tanya. Ugh. The Tanyas of history. We got to get them in line. <laughs> Sounds like another podcast episode. <laughs> then we go from this to ice skating. Meet us next week. And of course, this video, it's a lot of models and fashion show and stuff. And again, it's its sort of that whole, you know, Freedom 90 from listen without prejudice. And then the two funky single from the red hot and dance project. So George must've had a real fascination with modeling industry. 
in and of himself, I mean, he was a fashion icon. Oh, yes. With Faith, the Faith music video kind of redefining that like hybrid of masculinity. A lot of the bands in the mid 80s were like butt rock bands, right? They're mm-hmm. like super machismo, long hair bands, like, you know, all that sort of thing. And and here he comes like wearing the iconic white t-shirt and Levi's, but like he has a cross earring yes. in one ear. What? Yes. How mysterious, how interesting, how new, how innovative. And so I think that he really had some sort of fascination with fashion and high fashion at that, you know, not just like, oh, here's the latest fast fashion, but it's like high fashion and and that, that supermodel mm-hmm. and, you know, really like print luxe expressive fashion he he seemed to gravitate through which really just rose to the highest popularity in the 90s with the supermodels and mm-hmm. i was all about that in high school oh my oh, yeah. god i mean those were our those were our idols for the those were our influencers right we were like Absolutely. oh mm-hmm. yes you know yeah it, it's so true and despite how weird the video is, um, it won Best Direction of the Video at the 1988 MTV Video Music Awards. That's true. It uh-huh. did. <laughs> Someone said in the YouTube comments, I don't want to sound like a boomer, but growing up listening to this will make you better. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And over 85 million views agrees as well. So Yeah, I will mm-hmm. say I am eight of those views, not the 35 million from the faith video. <laughs> Um, but, you know, I, I agree with that YouTube commenter. I mean, it's a track to really pay attention to lyrically. Mm-hmm. I think it makes a lot of statements, you know, about love and commitment. Yeah, know? I think it was intended to be about devotion. But mm-hmm. now that we know what we know. <laughs> right. It's like we we take it with a little grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but we still find the sugar, you know. <laughs> we do. So let's move on to I Want Your Sex. Oh, this video. Drawing me with lipstick every day. Can I just say that? Yep. Just do it. Explore monogamy. This was the Nike of music videos. This was the just do it of music videos. Yeah, it was. You had mentioned that the song had the three parts. Rhythm Mm -hmm. one is called lust. Rhythm two is called brass in love. And rhythm three is called a last request. And, um, each one of these has a little different vibe and sound. It's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. It, I think it really tells the story, right? Mm-hmm. Like this was his saga, if you will, mm-hmm. like these, this three-parter. And I, I also just think it is so bold and brandishing that he chose this song to be his first ever from the record. Because, I mean, he had three singles before he released his album. But the first single from this record to be I Want Your Sex, Hello?, We're making statements. We like it. Man, the song was banned by a lot of radio stations in the U.S. Wouldn't even say sex. Yes, I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, he would just call this the new single by George Michael. Right, right. Wouldn't say the title of the song. Oh, Casey. Casey, you prudish. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) R.I.P. Yeah, I mean, I think what a bold way to break out, you know? be like, Hey, I'm breaking out. I've had these experiences. And I think I love that he write. what did he write? Monogamy, explore monogamy. So this is coming out middle of the eighties. 
this is the seventies. We're all free love, right? We're right. just doing each other all the time. We're, we're going to parties with fishbowls. We're having a, you know, a great time. Mm-hmm. And then we really start to see the early eighties. We see the AIDS epidemic, Yeah, you know? And so I think that, you know, he was a sex symbol, plain and simple. Like we objectify the man. We've done it plenty of times, you know, in this uh, conversation and knowing that he had such a platform and he had such a symbolism to him about sexuality um, and sex for him to make a statement like this right. was super, super powerful. It had a huge impact on rethinking multiple sex partners and, and you know, that sort of thing. So I, I just think it was bold in multiple ways, you know, melodically, lyrically, visually. It was just really well done. Yeah, because even in the lyrics, it says, I want your sex. I want your love, right? Mm-hmm. And it also says sex is best when it's one-on-one. Yeah. And, you know, MTV would only play this video late at night. They weren't even putting it on their daytime rotation. And George Michael didn't understand why. He's like, why is this such a big deal? He said, the song is not about casual sex. He found the act of monogamous sex beautiful. And mm-hmm. he wanted to express that freely. And the girl uh, in the video was his then girlfriend. Mm-hmm. She was a celebrity makeup artist, Kathy Jung. And he wanted her in the video to further illustrate that he was in a monogamous relationship. And he once called her his only bona fide girlfriend. He said, it was totally real. Kathy was in love with me, but she knew I was in love with the guy at that point in time. I was still saying I was bisexual. She was the only female that I ever brought into my professional life. I put her in a video. Of course, she looked like a beard. It was all such a mess, really. My own confusion. And then on top of that, what I was prepared to let the public think. Mm -hmm. So at the time, I think he was in his own state of trying to figure things out and what he wanted to publicly divulge, although he was in love with the man, but he was in a monogamous sexual relationship with her, his girlfriend. Yeah, I I think one of the lines that sticks out to me from that is the uh, boys we trust and the girls we don't. Mm-hmm. You could see him in, you know, real time recorded, but real time, like navigating that um, sexual identity, right? Being in the season of bisexuality, having the one romantic female partner that he had, and then, you know, it's kind of like moving through that, through the song. And then, yeah, I mean, there was such, such a kind of like, hmm, you know, like head scratcher because the visual of the video was very heteronormative, mm-hmm. but the lyrics were very suggestive of maybe something a little bit more in the middle of that. Interesting. Yeah. And it's a really sexy video. I mean, from all the satin sheets and, and butt close-ups and, and water. Yes. They did the trifecta, butt close-ups, water, <laughs> satin. <laughs> yes. And he actually never performed this song live after the Faith World Tour. That's the only tour he performed it on. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And the song peaked at number two on the U.S. charts. Uh, Rolling Stone editor David Frick described this song as a new bump and grind original that sounds more like Prince's stark, sexy kiss than anything in the Wham! catalog. 
So true. This was also his Prince era. I yes. mean, real. it was. And, you know, in some of these tracks on the album, you hear what sounds like a female voice. It's mm-hmm. actually his voice. That's so wild. To me. It's wild because I forgot the song. Do I have it written in my notes? I was trying to look up who was the singer, who was the female on that track. Nope. It was him. It was him. He it just him. went. Oh, Hard Day. If you go back and listen to Hard Day, that's okay. his voice. It's wild. Okay. I have to listen to that one. Yeah. And they were saying like, that is very reminiscent of Prince's female alter ego. I think her name is Camille. Mm-hmm. And um, when he does the female voice in his songs. And so really cool. So cool. I love, yeah. I just love the influence from musician to musician. It's so cool to see how they absorb that and digest it. And then like, I don't want to say regurgitate. That sounds so cool. Great language. Great vocab choices, Jess. But like how they intake that and then output it. Yes. Someone in the YouTube comments said, this five minute video is a million times hotter than all of those horrid Fifty Shades books combined. (laughs) Um, Millennial approved comment. Yes. (laughs) I want to talk about kissing a fool. We talked about it a little bit, but, um, George Michael wrote this song on his way to Japan for Wham's 1984 tour. So this song had been in the canon for a while. He had been working on it. And he said, it's about a relationship I had with someone who couldn't handle the situation because of who I was, George Michael. At the time, it did surprise me. First, I hadn't realized how much I'd achieved. And secondly, I hadn't realized it could have its limitations. I write it in that swing style because I think that period of music had a feeling of resignation. It's very much a late night giving up feeling. Oh, two. I mean, lots of things, but first two things. One, I want to know who this was. I know. I do too. <laughs> because what a dichotomy, mm-hmm. right? And then two, absolutely kissing a fool is your nightcap song. Yeah. You pour a little highball of brandy. Ooh, brandy. Yeah, we're going brandy. You get your pipe. You put you put your robe on. <laughs> you it's know, smoky up in this joint. Yeah. You turn that fire on and it's just like that is kissing a fool. Mm-hmm. There is ambiance in how he composed that song. Yeah. And and the delivery is so smooth. It is. I don't know why I whispered ASMR style, but I feel like the moment called for that, you know, felt it. thank you. Yeah. It goes down so smooth. Someone said in the YouTube comments, his voice is a whisper of love straight to my heart. I was like, girl, same, same dot squared here. Yes. It's a good one. Uh, Michael Buble covered this on his self-titled album, apparently. Oh, I did not know this. Mm -hmm. I will have to look that up. The boobs. Yeah. Of course, that's a ballad. Let's talk about One More Try. Yes. This is a powerful one. This song was written and recorded in eight hours, start to finish. Boom. Done. Mic drop. Here's the thing. When you get it, you get it, right? I mean, I guess because all the stars aligned. Yeah. And also, what a contrast to a song that he started in 84. And worked, you know, for three, four years mm-hmm. before it made it to a record. And then this, he's like, 
one industrial revolution day's work <laughs> later, I have a song, you know, like you're proud of yourself about what you accomplished today, Jess. Like I did not write my one more try today. No. I looked at 1500 memes and this man wrote a masterpiece <laughs> in the same period of time. I mean, what are we doing with our lives? Man, I don't know. I ask myself that every single day. <laughs> I know. Let's not get too existential here. Let's let's stick with George. Let's come back to center. <laughs> he was a genius. And I think mm-hmm. sometimes you look at the sex symbol of it all and you maybe forget a little bit that mm-hmm. he was as talented as he was. He was right. more than just a pretty face and a pretty voice. He had the musical ability. He was a composer. More, more than just a visual specimen. Yes. Right. The video is really simple. It was directed by filmmaker Tony Scott, who directed Top Gun and Days of Thunder and True Romance. A move over Maverick. We've got a music video to make here, right? And I was like, wow, each one of those movies has a lot like visually happening. And yet this video is just this like simple moody video with like a lonely, sad Michael, like pushing himself up against a wall a lot of times. I mean, Tony needed a break. Let's be real. He's like, can we just please just. We just just, not. Just press yourself against that wall and we'll be good. You did this in eight hours. Let's make the video in two and just call it a day. (laughs) Say this though. And this is a common theme with George Michael in his videos. Going back to the Wham days, when he looks into the camera to sing, like he fucking means it. Oh yeah. He's looking into you laser beam to the soul and your heart and he means that shit Mm -hmm. he showed up to show out and he goes straight for it hypnotizing absolutely and it's funny because it's like there are these beauty shots right like he just looks so damn good he's just so fine and yet he's singing to you and you're like oh my god i received the message (laughs) Whatever you want, you can have. <laughs> it's like an overwhelm of intensity. It is. It's like, see me and then see me, you know? And it's like, oh my God, I do. It's sort of like looking at the sun. Like it's so intense and he's so beautiful. And you're like, oh my God, can't look away, but then can't look straight at it. But also my cornea, <laughs> right? Exactly. Optometrist, not approved. Oh, What do people say about it? Okay, so this has been viewed over 142 million views. This has been viewed a lot more than even. Is it the most of his, of this, from this record? It sounds like it so far. (gasps) Yeah. That's interesting. That is interesting. Uh, Someone said, still the most emotional song to come out of this era. I mean, the man takes us on an emotional journey. Mm -hmm. He does. Mm-hmm. And it hit number one on the U.S. charts. I mean, it did very well. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's that's the telling point. Simple is better. And really, the spirit of the song, sad. It's about a breakup and like, can't you just give me one more chance? And can't we just make one last shot at this? And I think it's been viewed so many times because this is a pretty universal human experience. Right. You know, digging into it and looking at it from that perspective you're like, I don't want the pomp and the circumstance. Like, I just want, let's just try it one more time. Get all the fluff out of the way. Let's just make it really fucking simple mm-hmm. and take me back, baby. You know, take me back, mm. which leads us to monkey, which <laughs> I really love this song Same. and the words are kind of dumb. 
They are. It's so, it's so silly. It is the most frivolous of all nine. It really is. I read somewhere that he said, I don't have the exact quote. Like, I don't even care if when you strip the words away from my songs, it sounds dumb. Like when I'm writing a dance track, I just want it to be like a cool, awesome dance track. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter what the words say, because at some point he does say, why do I have to share my baby with a monkey? Yeah. And I mean, okay. Okay. I'm like, are we poetic? Is this literal? Are we going figurative? Like, I'm sure it's figurative. Like, like yeah. you have this monkey on your back. Like I, I have to share you with this other thing, this stressor in your life or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I was focused on the fact that he was wearing the hat and the suspenders and dancing, which Paula Abdul choreographed this video. Did she really? Mm-hmm. That's so bonkers. I oh know. Gosh. Talk about another icon. Let's oh, be love her. Yeah. So the video basically just cuts between concert footage of George Michael's 1988 tour. Mm-hmm. He's very energetic on stage. I have huge regret in that I never had the chance to see him in concert. Did you? Same. I did not. And it was definitely on my bucket list. Oh, so. yeah. I mean, he is so like he's running around on stage and so much spinning, 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 spinning. Oh, I know. I was like, what, where is your equilibrium? Do you have any? I know. Even in the choreography where it's him against that like white background and he's doing the mm, dancing, yeah. it's kind of seizure inducing, honestly, but yeah. um, lots of spinning work. Yeah. But he was a very visual performer. Mm-hmm. That is, there's no denying that for mm-hmm. sure. So this song also reached number one on the U.S. charts. So it's a fun one. I like it. It's a bop. It, it, it is a bop. It is a bop. Yeah. The lyrics are nonsense in a way. If you, I think if you take them at face value, they're nonsense. But if you right. do dig in like figuratively, you know, monkey on the back is like the weight of something, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of has some sort of effect on every other thing. We, we get it. I mean, I have a monkey on my back right now. Like I'm already like thinking about what I'm going to make for dinner. I hate Ugh. that monkey on my back. It's on my back every goddamn night. I know. Okay. So in terms of legacy, this album sold over 25 million copies. It was the best-selling album of 1988. Yep. And um, in a 1988 interview with Jet Magazine, he said, I was much happier with Faith being the number one black chart album than I was when it became the number one pop album. There was so much more of a sense of achievement. I knew this album would be a shock or a surprise to people in this country. The up-tempo side of the new music is more overtly sexual, more Black. Mm -hmm. So it was the sound that he was going for. Yeah, I I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where the first solo album from someone who came from a band, like defining that sort of like, you know, what is my personal sound? You know, from interviews I've seen, I've read the Jet article you know, he really wanted to genre jump, genre jump. That's a tongue twister. Yes, it is. Genre jump from that really pop centric. And I mean, Faith is even categorized as a pop album, you know, Mm -hmm. obviously on the charts and any sort of streaming or listening service, you that's where it's categorized. But it did feel so much more like funk and soul and Mm R&B than just like straight pop. I agree. And the quality of his voice and what's so amazing about his talent is that he really could transcend genre, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can very much get a sense that George Michael could sing an entire gospel album and Mm -hmm. kill it, 
right? Yeah. Then you've got the jazzy kind of sound. Then you've got more funk and soul, like you're saying. Then he can also do the pop. He just crossed all the lines. And mm. that's just true talent right there. Yeah, exactly. Faith won album of the year at the 31st Grammy Awards. And in terms of his sexuality, he came out in 1998. He was an active LGBTQ rights campaigner and HIV AIDS charity fundraiser. He had problems with drug use. He was arrested for public lewdness. And there's a 2005 documentary called A Different Story that covered his career and personal life. And I haven't seen it, but I heard that it was really good and that it told more of the whole story. And that's something I would be very much interested in seeing. So um, he was also incredibly philanthropic. All the proceeds, all the proceeds, and it's a lot of Last Christmas from 1984 and Band-Aids, Do They Know It's Christmas, went to famine relief in Ethiopia. And he continued his philanthropy all throughout his life until his death. And he died. um, 2016. I know. Okay. He died on Christmas day, 2016. Oh, such a loss. I know it's been like a lifetime, but six years. So that's wild. I think that that's the true like testament to the power of someone's art and expression Mm -hmm. is that one minute, one year, six years feels like he's been gone forever. It does. It's so wild to be like, we live in a world now without a George Michael. That is the most depressing thing. I know you're I welcome. Heard. And now we sob. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for bringing the pod way down, Jess. Mm-hmm. Appreciate you're it. You're welcome. I figure I wanted to balance all the corny jokes that I've made along the way just with a nice big downer. Oh man. I just miss him so much. And I think about him a lot. I, th- I think I think about him maybe more than the average person just going through my day. I'm a huge Elton John fan. And in my Elton John rotation is the duet of Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. Which yeah, I was just going to ask about that. It's my favorite. I mean, it's it's just so good. And dare I say, George Michael makes that song so much better than the original. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot for me to say that because nobody loves Elton John more than me in this whole wide world. And he elevates that song to a level that just, it just breaks me open every single time I hear it. And I've heard it 10 billion times and it's still amazing. That version with the duet is, is the version that gives me sheeting chills when I listen to it. Every time I hit play, I'm like, I just know I'm going to be chicken skin the whole time. And we're just going to deal with that later. We'll shave again few days mm-hmm. from all the hair regrowth and you know but but truly it's he had this transcendent tonal ability to take music and make it magic he did and you know none of the runs in his voice sounded forced or mm-hmm. try hard right he was never trying to be impressive no he just fucking what? was impressive <laughs> yes he just was he wasn't trying to be impressive. He just was. And I think it's such a validated statement. Like we're saying it now, but anybody who has followed any capacity of his career or his discourse about his career as, you know, the celebrity and, and stuff like that would be like, yeah, he didn't try. He he just wanted to make music and it was impressive and it was powerful. 
and it made you think and it made you feel and that that was that that's who George was uh, oh, look at me talking talking about him like I'm like and we were buddies and <laughs> well I, I think that that's what is so powerful about him is that we all feel connected to him like it all feels really personal yeah yeah you know? George Michael forever we miss you we love you mm-hmm. mm. big puffy hearts from George to Jess I want to shine a spotlight on Incredible You. You are a creative entrepreneur with a bunch of crazy successful endeavors across music, film, comedy, pop culture, consumer goods, and personal branding. The girl does it all, you guys. I mentioned at the top of the pod, you are the founder of Roadie Social. Tell me about your inspiration behind creating Roadie Social. So I actually love telling this story about where Roadie Social was born from. So my first like real big girl job after I graduated high school was not the studious kid, right? Okay. <laughs> I was like, I am not built for traditional schooling. So I was like, hey, I'm just going to go work and be a big girl and be a student of the world. And I think okay. that, that that is better a better fit for me. So I immediately got into radio. So I worked in radio, worked in that until I had my son. Uh, and then was fortunate enough to stay home with my son. And so my son was about seven. He's in school finally. And I'm sitting in my apartment in LA and I'm just like tooling around on the internet, making commentary on pop culture. And I'm like, roadie social popped in my head. Those two words, those two words together, they just popped in lightning in a bottle. So I did what any millennial would do. I did the full digital footprint sweep. I got the domain. I got the social handles and I sat on them for seven years because I didn't know what to do with it. But you just knew it was going to be a thing. You were going to have to come. Wow. I I paid it mine once a year when I would get that, hey, your domain's going to renew like email and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I I should probably think about doing something with that. And then I just didn't. So you didn't have a larger vision for what it was. It was just those two words. It was just the two words. Oh man, that's really cool. Yeah. So I was like, all right. So it was like, this was my kissing a fool, right? Mm -hmm. I like just, I sat on it for seven years and I was like, going to do something with this at some point, moved on, went in and did all of the consumer product good stuff and the, you know, all of the other things that were not entertainment or music related. And then it was actually last September. So September, 2021, I'm on TikTok as some of us are. (laughs) One of my favorite things when I was in radio was the live show production and the live Mm -hmm. show stuff. Like there's nothing like standing side stage or front row against the barricade at a show. Doesn't matter who you are. There is nothing like that. So as we know, there was a pandemic happening. <laughs> uh, I almost forgot. I know. Sorry. Sorry for the reminder. Mm-hmm. But global touring for musicians completely stopped for like a solid year. Yes. There was nobody touring. There was no one doing one-off shows. I mean, for health and safety, it just wasn't wasn't the vibe. So early fall, Harry Styles starts to go on tour. I'm kind of familiar with who that is. 
kind of familiar. Let's be real. 2017, I had left a long-term relationship and that was also his debut solo album release from his time in One Direction. And I was too old to be a directioner. I had a toddler at home. <laughs> like that was just not my era. No shame. No shame. You know, so I was like, oh, his first record I really paid attention to. And then just for like the three month, you just left a long relationship experience. And uh, then just like, okay, out of sight, out of mind. Like that was cool. That was, a, again, like we were saying, like a soundtrack to the season of my life. And that season ended. And so I kind of moved on. And TikTok was inundated with fan content from his shows. He started in, I think it was early September. And I was like, this is fascinating to me. So I just started to really study the fan content for him. And then I kind of dipped into other fandoms of modern day, you know, and of, of, you know, people who are touring and um, still performing and stuff. And I was like, this is absolutely incredible because I don't know about you, but I used to get a Tiger Beat magazine and send a check to an official fan Fan club club. Mm -hmm. to get a personal quote, personal letter (laughs) from the band (laughs) mailed to me, you know, and be like, oh my gosh, I'm in this fan club. And it's like, it was just a badge of honor. It really wasn't something. Right. And when I, when I'm paying attention to this, I'm like, oh, this is the something that was missing from that sort of like era of, you know, fandom and fan clubs. And seeing all this content was the perfect exposure for roadie social to click. Cause I was like, this is all unofficial content. This is all unofficial experience that's happening. Right. Fan generated and, you know, the pandemic and not, and not having the ability for artists to tour and have that emotional energy exchange. You can't replicate it online. There will never be a day where a metaverse means more than an in-person interaction, just plain and hundred percent. Mm-hmm. And so that had been on a hiatus for so long that when the fans had an opportunity to stand in the same room and have no differences to exist because they were existing in shared joy, it was like the rocket ship, right? So much so that, you know, it used to be like, oh, the record label or, oh, your local radio station would be like, hey, so-and-so's coming to town, da-da-da-da-da. And for so many different reasons, the fan commitment was like, uh, shaky, right? Shaky at the end of the year. So many tours that were set for 2020 and then they got pushed off and some some of them that were originally planned for 2020 aren't happening until 2023 still, you know? So it, it's like this chaotically long, like... Girl, I uh, have to tell you, my son graduated in 2020 and I bought him because he is a super fan. I bought him as his graduation gift four tickets to see the weekend. Okay. Mm, it was kind mm-hmm. of a smaller type venue at that time. Then it's canceled. Oh man, bummer. Okay. That sucks. Then it was rescheduled for 2021. Canceled. Then it was rescheduled for 2022. And I'm like, this is the fucking worst graduation (laughs) gift I could have ever given you. He finally now has tickets to see him again. But yes, he had wanted that so bad for so long. Mm -hmm. And it was like, how do you forge and create and encapsulate 
that experience Mm -hmm. that's meaningful to the people that should be there or want to be there or ultimately can be there? What is that going to be for them? Because that is absolutely my favorite part about attending concerts. It's being in a shared space with people who are feeling just as passionate about what they're hearing and seeing as you are. It's so rare in life to be able to click with that many people in like a single moment. Right. To be in a room with hundreds to tens of thousands of people who are strangers, but for those 90 minutes, your friends, your best friends, nothing else matters, but the moment you're sharing in, in that experience, there was an artist I was paying attention to went on tour, started early this year, February, and was doing theater shows. So right, like maybe 2000 capacity max. And I happened to hop into an Instagram live stream of just a fan that was in the front row that just had their Instagram live open was 90% immersed, obviously in the show being there. And there were consistently for the entire 90 minutes, 80,000 people watching that stream. It never dipped below 80,000 people, which was insanity. This was this person's first record and first tour supporting the record. Wow. And so I was like, there is an element of nurturing between that artist and fan relationship that elevates access to that live show experience that I am not seeing anyone tap into with that at the center of it. It's one side's benefit or the other side's benefit. And so I was like, I'm going to be that bridge. (laughs) That this is mutually beneficial. That's what roadie social that I thought of seven years ago in an apartment in LA is meant to be. Wow. Because I saw on your website, it said multi-show attendance is no longer reserved for groupies only. And I love that. You also said, whether you believe it or not, these fans are already an extension of the road crew. They show up early, leave late and grant virtual access to fans who weren't able to be there in person. Mm -hmm. And it's true. It's like they're, they're doing it organically and they're doing it from, you know, just a place of passion and they want the success. You know, there's no gatekeepers when it comes to music. I mean, sometimes it's like the old hipster thing. It's like, you don't even know this band, you know, like that's like, that doesn't (laughs) exist now because everyone's like, dude, the more I get people amped about this artist or this band that I'm into, the more opportunities I get to see them, whether that's standing in the room or watching someone's live stream. So I think that like, you know, fan engagement is, is something that sits right now in this silo of, I guess, the traditional industry gatekeepers, like labels and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And artists being more and more the source of who the fans trust when information is communicated. Like Columbia Records could not say, oh, this is da 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 about this artist. But if that artist says it from their Twitter account or whatever, the fans are like, okay, I feel more comfortable. I feel feel more confident about showing up to a show in the the swirl of a pandemic or any, you know, scenario that could be like, uh, do I want to financially commit to this? Do I want to physically, you know, and, and healthily commit to this. Right. So kind of moving that ownership of opportunity and, and connection to the artist teams, um, as opposed to kind of like the monolith and monopoly of 
Right. Like the business people. The business side of it. Business, the, the suits. suits. <laughs> yeah, the suits, man. Stick it to the man. You know, so th- that's really what I'm really looking to pursue with, with Roadie Social is to be that artist team side. And, and, th- and that's who I really like talk with the most is artist managers and artists themselves about like, hey, how do you want to do this? Because they do, they're like, yeah, our brand developed like light speed comparatively to, you know, where we were before everyone was stuck at home and we don't know whose hands to put that in. And so That's I was like, right. it's an incredible. I have two very large hands. So welcome. <laughs> you put it in roadie Social's hands. I did. Yeah. So you put them here. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So why don't you tell people where they can find you? So they, you can find me personally on Twitter at Shugalippo. We'll spell that out. And I didn't swear at you in some weird language. It's a made up word. And then uh, you can follow Roadie Social on Instagram and Twitter. RoadieSocial.com is where you can learn more about that. Great. Oh, that's so exciting, Jess. I mean, I can't think of a better fit for you. Thank you. And the fact that it came to you, it's, it's really something like from the heavens. Yeah. It's something that to get really woo-woo about it, it's something that led me instead of me leading it. There's something special there in spending the time that we have being led by something that feels bigger than ourselves, our own like ego or interest or what have you. So. Oh, so great. Okay. Well, before I let you go, I'm doing a thing where I ask lightning round questions to my guests. My favorite type of thing. All right. Pearl Jam or Nirvana? Nirvana. Best fast food fries? McDonald's. Mm. Favorite 90s fragrance? I didn't wear perfume yet. I was too young. (laughs) Oh my God, shut up. I'm a baby. Shut up. Okay. What did your mom wear? <laughs> my mom was, did not wear perfume. You are making me feel real old I'm right so now. Sorry. And not I was like, oh no, it. it's my tell. I don't know. Aqua de Joe. Oh. Is that 90s? I have no idea. I don't know. Okay. We'll pretend that's it. Okay. Man. Okay. Well, Calgon, take me away. Go <laughs> next. <laughs> did you ever own a bucket hat? Oh, yeah. Um, you're going to need to produce some proof for me to use on Instagram. So I will get those. Yes. (laughs) Brandon or Dylan? Dylan. Okay. What was your first car? My first car was a bright red Chevy Cavalier. Oh, nice. What year was it? It was a 1997. So it was like. Again, aging <laughs> myself and making car. Lori feel weird. <laughs> like it was yeah, a so it car. was pretty, pretty brand new. <laughs> okay. Uh, and the answer to this one's probably no, because. Um, <laughs> I didn't you- file taxes in 1989. <laughs> no, I was three. <laughs> How did you know? Were you a latchkey kid? I actually was a latchkey kid. You were. I was. Okay. Yes. Bold choice for your parents, considering how old you were and how the tide was changing. <laughs> right. I mean, here's the thing. I actually, so I listened to your episode with Wit. Honey, oh, God, I love Wit. Yep. And actually, after the episode, I called my mom and I was like, Mom, I want to talk to you about this because <laughs> I feel like this was my upbringing and I, it's wild. She was like, Yeah. She was like, You guys would get yourself up into school 
And you would come home and feed yourselves like an afternoon snack, sometimes dinner before we got home from work. So you were getting yourself to school and home. 100%. The number of times I missed the bus and had to ask a neighbor to drive me to school. Embarrassing. But I couldn't have one more truancy on my record. So, or call my mother at work. She'd be furious. Right. Um, But yeah, that was the situation for us. And it's like, I grew up at the end of a cul-de-sac, fairly safe suburban neighborhood Mm -hmm. in Arizona. And- That was just, that's what we knew. Okay. What was your after-school snack of choice? I really loved Dunkaroos. (laughs) Mm, Comfort classic. Okay. Film that traumatized you most as a kid. And considering how young you are, this is probably something we all watched in college. So go for it, girl. I was like, well, when you had your fourth baby, you know, um, you're like insidious. <laughs> no, Labyrinth really fucked me up. Oh my god. Oh god. Yeah, it was scary to me too when I was a kid, but I love it now. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm obsessed with it now. I'm like, Bowie, you done did it. Oh yeah. But yeah, when I was a kid, I was like, I can never sleep again. So <laughs> okay. First concert. My first concert was actually Ozzy Osbourne. Shut up. As a kid, I was a huge Black Sabbath fan. Shut up. Yeah. No, no jokes. No one would guess it. They're like, what? Miss pop boy band. What the what? <gasps> um, yeah. Ozzy Osbourne was the first one. I was nine years old. Okay. Um, it was actually the first year of Ozfest before it was a fest that like okay. toured. So it was like, yeah, Desert Sky Pavilion. It was my first like introduction to secondhand high because we were up right. by the lawn seats yep and I was like hmm, that smells like skunks and my mom's like well well darling <laughs> um and I also got to see a white British butt he mooned us I remember that vividly some things we never forget Jess Ozzy Osbourne's ass cheeks unforgettable <laughs> crazy train right yeah total crazy train so were you a little bit like like you're a fan of the music, but the actual fandom of it, how did that make you feel? I mean, obviously there was a lot of new sensory experiences, right? The weeds. <laughs> that is putting it so mildly. Very mildly. Um, and, you know, just the smell of like old stale beer, <laughs> you know, that people because <laughs> they were like rocking so right. hard and head banging and, mm-hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff. But, but yeah, I just, I just remember being like, literally mesmerized with the stage. Like nothing could pull my attention from what was happening on the stage. And so I was like, Oh, that's cool. And I remember as I got older and I started to kind of like go to, you know, different genres of shows and stuff. I remember looking back and being like, there was a moment when I was nine years old in an oversized radio promo t-shirt watching Ozzy Osbourne perform where I was like, I want to get closer. I want to get closer. And it's like a real full circle sort of thing with roadie social. Yeah. So there was always for me, like from the first concert I went to always a draw to be like closer. Right. And I remember my boss in radio really saw a lot of things in me that I, I mean, I was so green to the industry. I was so green. I was just like, Oh, this will be cool. I'll work at a radio station. Like mm-hmm. I'll sort through CDs all day. That's cool. I might meet some rock stars along the way. And, um, you know, he saw something in me where he was like, you have something that not a lot of people in this industry have where you treat. And he, he taught me really, really early on treat these people like they're human beings. 
mm-hmm. and not some star or celebrity or whatever. And you will be the person that sticks out to them from their day. Cause everyone is just kind of like, ah, goo goo gaga. Right. right. And a lot of the context of how I was interacting with these musicians and, and artists when they co- would come through was in that goo goo gaga phase. I'm like, I'm facilitating meet and greets and, you know, on air interviews. And it's very like on moments for them. And, you know, I was fortunate with his like mentorship and guidance to create, uh, you know, a reputation for being the safe person that, oh, I just feel like safe and comfortable. And I can kind of just like, like be think into be myself, you know, after I got into the industry and then came out of it, even when I would attend shows just as, you know, a fan and a spectator, I would feel uncomfortable if I wasn't sitting a certain closeness to the stage to like exchange that safe energy, Mm. which sounds again, super woo woo. (laughs) But you know, that, that, that was something for me where I was like knowing the back of the house and knowing the front of the house, it just really kind of stuck with me that I was like, there's something really special here that doesn't have to feel so pedestal and pedestrian about it. Mm -hmm. So great. Okay. So this last question is for me. We we touched on it briefly. Favorite Elton John song. Favorite Elton John song. You're like, I'm not really a fan. (laughs) Oh my gosh. No, I would literally (laughs) jump into traffic. Um, Elton's amazing. And I can't believe he's 75. That's wild. Oh my God. Um, What is aging, right? I think Candle in the Wind. I know that sounds so cheesy. No, it doesn't. That song gets me every time. It's beautiful. Thank you so much, Jess, for taking the time. I've been excited about today for a really long time. Me too. I'm like, this is so exciting. I thank you for having me. I could talk about pop culture from any generation. I feel like forever and people have to tell me to shut up or I just won't stop. Well, I knew that I could trust you with the Gen X content and that says a lot about you. Again, very honored. I hold that preciously. Thank you. And of course, listeners, thank you so much for joining us. And please remember to rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. We have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the Untitled Gen X podcast. You can find us all over the web at the Untitled Gen X podcast. And as always, we hope you keep in touch, beautiful people. Bye. Bye.